0: the reality that is present to us and in us, call it being, call it silence. And the simple fact that by being attentive, by learning to listen, or recovering the natural capacity to listen, we can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained. The happiness of being at one with everything in the hidden ground of love. So you've all had a chance to spend many hours investigating this silence and what it could mean for each of us the great happiness that we have the potentiality to realize. In the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, we saw how the Four Noble Truths emerge in the very first limb of the Eightfold Noble Path. When we are caught up in samsara, in the world of the sense realm and the emotional world, then it's very difficult for us to know the transcendent. And I think that all of us come to this teaching because at some point in our lives we realize that the sensory realm does not give us that happiness that we so long for. And we try different things. We try exploring all the experiences that that realm has to offer us. When we're children, it seems like we're able to enjoy it in a different way. We're able to be light in it. To connect with our own being. To play. To be very present. To be aware. To smell a flower and really be with it. To listen to a bee buzzing. And be absolutely astounded. And then as we grow and we take on the responsibilities and the kind of intellectual engagements that um, adult life necessitate in order for us to function in the world and to succeed according to social convention, we somehow become distant from that again. It's very difficult for us to find a way back to that center, to find a way back to connection. I remember when I was a little girl, we lived near a railroad track, and I used to go and sit at the edge of the railroad track this is in the 50s, and they had the old kind of trains. And they used to, once in a while, come past this big train chugging along. And I would get so excited, wondering, where is it going? And then at the end of the train, all these hobos. And I would wave, really excited, like my best friends, there they go. And I wanted to go with them, wherever didn't matter. Just get on that train and sit in the caboose and travel. And now when I get on the train, I get on the little blue train that goes between Pai Pariki and Wellington. And I remember, this is just like when I was seven. I get so excited. I'm looking through the train window and seeing Cap the Island and everybody else is reading the newspaper like this. And I want to shake them. and say, look, look. But they're too busy to look. Or they're sleeping, because they catch an extra hour before you get to work. This is the early train. And it's full. It's grand. Everybody's catching the train to get to work. And if you've ever been to Wellington train station at rush hour, you can see how serious everybody looks. They haven't got time to notice if some little child is playing with its balloon and has absolutely glorious look in its eyes, life is just rushing by. So then we have to find other ways to find happiness because our lives are very stressed. So there's restaurants and there's movies. We really are thirsty for ways to find happiness. The sense world it 's full of excitement and pleasurable experiences, but eventually we have to come back to our own reality, the reality of our own experience, our body, our mind, and the kinds of challenges that we face, just like loneliness, not getting along with our partners our children, our parents. Not getting along with ourselves, just feeling unworthy, feeling like life has no meaning. That no matter how many good restaurants you go to, no matter how many award-winning films you see, no matter how many PhDs you accumulate, no matter how many thrilling computer programs you manage to load onto your PC before it crashes. It's not enough. It doesn't somehow touch that place that allows us to come to life and connect again the way we did with that wonder, with that absolute joy in the moment, having nothing. What do we have as kids? Well, in the old days, we had some very simple toys. Today, the toys are more high-tech. I think it would have been unusual if we had a toy with a battery in it years ago. But to be able to play, to be able to be simple, to be able to be aware and really be in the present moment, to taste life, Now, in the Dhammachaka Puvatana Sutta, the Buddha tells us not to indulge in either of the extremes to find the happiness we're looking for, to to try to cultivate the middle way. So naturally, it's not about becoming children again. That's not going to work. That isn't what we're looking for. What we're looking for really is that certain purity of heart, and that innocence. And in order to establish the highway or the pathway that takes us to the middle of these two extremes of indulgence in the sensory realm and of renouncing everything and turning one's back on the world and just fasting and enduring and being incredibly hard on oneself, in order to, to be able to cultivate that middle way, we have to cultivate purity of heart, purity of mind, purity of action and speech. We must be able to develop a mind that is centered and still. This is the quality of mindfulness coupled with concentration. And then we have to be able to use discernment, wisdom. The wisdom factor has to grow and be activated. And then we have a chance to observe the unfolding of this Eightfold Path. I have been contemplating how right view the right view, which is the first limb of the Eightfold Path, contains the Four Noble Truths, and how we actually, in one sitting, we can realize these Four Noble Truths by focusing on our meditation object. And this takes a little bit of doing, because at first when we sit down to breathe, or to pay attention Whatever object we pick up in consciousness, we have to really struggle just to pick it up, and we have to make a great effort. So, the right view, or right understanding of the path, arises when we're able to see that there is an origin to this suffering, and that is, what is it? It's when we are unable to be aware. When we cannot connect to the present moment, when we're unable to abide in the middle and be balanced, we suffer. We become tense. And that tension takes many forms. It takes the forms of self-hatred, of despair, of -of out-of-control anger, of um, negativity, of impatience, of cruelty, of anger, of bitterness, of loneliness, or just placidly going along our lives, feeling as if we are not getting anywhere, our relationships are flat. We don't love life. We're carrying a burden. And this is the suffering that we all eventually face in one way or another. I remember not long ago I was teaching a class in the Dhamma school and there were some teenagers in the group. And so one of them piped up and he said, I'm not suffering. And he was all of 17, having a great time. Life is fantastic. I'm not suffering. Life is so exciting, it's so full. Now I remember when I was that age, And uh, I had a boyfriend and and he was in an accident. He went diving and he hit his head on a rock and he became paralyzed for life. And I remember how much all of us suffered when this happened. We just couldn't handle it. Because suddenly the youth was lost, the physical mobility was lost, He was crippled. Suddenly, This attitude of, I'm not suffering, I'm on top of the world, no problem. In a moment, everything changes, and yes, there is dukkha, and it's serious. And we all think that somehow we're going to be protected from that, it will never happen to us. But the longer we live, people start having cancer, people start dying. People start being in terrible car accidents. You lose your parents. Your brother or sister or somebody commits suicide. Somebody loses a baby in childbirth. A child is born malformed, mentally retarded. So many things. And it piles up. And eventually we have to come to the place... Where things don't satisfy, don't live up to our expectations. And this is where all of us meet the first noble truth. That there is suffering. And it's nothing wrong. We think that when it when it hits us, something is wrong. But actually, it's nature. Because these bodies are bound to get old and get sick and die. To fall apart. They are death-bound. And all the things in our lives that we invest in, really, all the pleasures of the sense realm are death-bound. We're investing in death every day. They're not permanent. They never were and they never will be. So our attachment to the, the pleasures of the sense realm and our aversion to the pain of the sense realm is because we're constantly investing in things that are impermanent, that have the nature to create suffering for us, to disappoint us, and they are—they don't belong to us. They are not ultimately something we can possess for own. Not even these bodies. This is not a pessimistic teaching. It's, it's a truth. And it is a noble truth because it's true for all beings, in all ages, universally, in every country, everybody, in every world, in every year, three thousand, four thousand years ago, three thousand, four thousand years from now, if the world is still here, these four noble truths will still be valid. So then we investigate in the breath when we begin to, to discover these places within us that are frightening, that we don't want to see, that we, we're not, we don't want to experience anxiety. We don't want to experience self-hatred. We don't want to look in the shadowy parts of our hearts. But in order to uncover the causes of our suffering, we have to look we have to face up to and acknowledge what we're carrying, what we're holding, and what prevents us from connecting and being present in joy, in freedom, in fullness of being, so that we can experience the unshakability of the heart that the Buddha promised us is possible for every human being. So, We discover it when we're not aware of the breath, when we can't stay with the breath, when we're all over the place and having to face the confusion, the frustration, the boredom, the weariness, the disaffection, the discontent, the dis-ease that arises in the mind as we just sit and watch our breath something wrong with the breath It didn't do anything to us The only problem is our expectation. We want something from it we want it to to make us happy or to entertain us to be exciting. But actually it's not in excitement that we find the cooling and stillness and dispassion of the mind that leads to freedom. It's in exactly the opposite. It's in that peace and that non-movement, non-agitation, where we can see the truth of what we are and who we are or are not, that we can become established in the pure pure energy of enlightenment that is always available to us in every moment. So the suffering is what we add on top of the breath. And that's the origin. Being unable to be present with the breath and realizing what it feels like to not be able to be aware is the origin of the stress, of this discontent or malcontent. And the good news is that when we are able to pay attention, when we're able to penetrate to the three characteristics of whatever object we're observing that arises and ceases, that appears and subsides, whatever experience, whatever mood in the mind, whatever sound or emotion, as long as we're able to observe it from its beginning, throughout its duration and to its through its subsiding, to know its characteristics, then we begin to realize the arising and the cessation of suffering. It's not just that it's there, but it also can cease. And this is a liberating quality of the mind, of awareness itself. We have the potentiality to know the ending of stress. And we can discover the ending of stress in one moment, in this moment. And at that moment we connect to our experience. We connect deeply. We come back to a place of purity. And of course, when we review, how did we get to that moment, that very little taste of purity, how did we begin to see it? What happened, and you review and reflect in your mind, you'll come across the eight limbs of the Eightfold Path. They'll be right there in your mindfulness, your concentration, your right view by observing the arising of dukkha, the origin of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and how it came to be in the first place. We will have been aiming our thoughts, and using our thoughts in the right way, we will have been making the right effort. The effort to pay attention. The effort to let go unwholesomeness. The effort to abide in the purity of the mind. The effort not to follow distracting thoughts. The effort to unify the mind on one point the effort to be present for, moment by moment, whatever arises in consciousness, in its totality, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is called also right action because it's the act of meditation. We are actively pursuing presence in the moment. This is not the kind of right action that we practice when we're in the world. But this is the right action of abandoning unwholesomeness and concentrating the mind on pure seeing. If you want to understand the meaning of love, then you have to be willing to see. And this goes for ourselves. So this right action is actually befriending the moment making friends with the present moment. And it's also right speech in the sense of we're abiding in the silence of the heart. We're not listening to the past. We're not listening to the voices of the future. We're not nibbling on these little carrots of fantasy and delusion that constantly Attack and assault the mind. We are renouncing all of this and trying to be content with the utmost radical simplicity of the heart. And if we can do that, we can actually taste the very simplest, simplest joy and most profound peace that a human being can aspire towards. Now, some of us might feel that we can't do it. That we're too neurotic. Um, and all of us need to. You know, we all have our neuroses. We all have the places where we're caught. We all have our fears. We all have our moments of angst, discouragement. But not to the extent that we can't do it. So never buy into that, I'm too neurotic, I'm hopeless. Never believe those voices of the critical mind, because if you believe them, you'll never be able to begin this practice. So when you sit down and you begin to focus within and you feel some kind of negative emotion thundering inside of you, And you just want to scream and run out the door. Trust that that negative emotion is actually the doorway to Nibbana. It is a golden opportunity to experience the Eightfold Path in this very moment. To realize the Four Noble Truths in one breath. It's not something to get rid of. It's not an obstacle It's actually compost, rich, as paradoxical as it might seem. It creates an opportunity to come face to face with what it is that frightens us. Otherwise, we will always be under the tyranny of our fears. If we avoid fear for the rest of our lives, then when it's time for us to die we will die in fear. We will never have the opportunity to liberate ourselves. So it's best we do it now when we're still compass mentis, able to sit straight, focus the mind, remember not to cling when we're clinging, remember to let go, and actually do it with the support of like-minded friends in this very conducive environment. And the more broken you feel, you're already not fighting the Mara's uh, arrogance. It takes a real humility to recognize that you're afraid of sickness, or you're afraid of loneliness, or you just can't find any meaning in your life. It takes great humility just to acknowledge that, and great wisdom. Already there's great wisdom there. So as broken as you may feel, trust that out of that brokenness will come the unbroken. And out of that desperation will come a great light that you can shine from within you that will help you to see your own strength. And out of the loneliness will come a sense of fellowship and friendship with all beings everywhere so that you will grow in your eagerness to fulfill this path, not just for yourselves, but because this will bring blessings to everyone. There's a lovely story from India of a farmer who used to water his field and he had two water pots made of clay. Every day he would go to the well and fill each pot and then he would carry the pots back to his house and one of the pots had a hole in it and would always leak so by the time he got to his house only half the water was left. The pot was very ashamed of itself because it couldn't do the proper job. And so one day it apologized to the farmer profusely for making him exert unnecessarily just to lose so much water along the way. And the farmer said to the pot, Did you notice that I planted some flowers all along the path? So on one side while I was walking, the water that leaked out from you has been watering these flowers. And on the other side of the path there was nothing. And so in fact this poor little cracked pot was actually creating these beautiful flower blossoms for the farmer to enjoy and for the cows to nibble on and for the bees to draw their honey from. And so though we might feel incapable at some level that we might get very, very discouraged because we can't sit still or mind just won't stop thinking won't stop worrying and just to realize that there are certain wondrous things mysteries growing within you invisibly as you sit and water the flower of mindfulness moment by moment you don't even realize how much your effort to pay attention is cumulative and really develops a certain strength in your mind. It's a training. We come back to the training, the threefold training. It doesn't happen automatically. We must keep making the effort. Now this little pot, if it didn't keep getting full, even half full, being carried along and leaking, nothing would grow there on the wayside. So if you just come in and sit and you're half awake and you're half mindful, that's better than nothing. Just see. Just the intention to be here in this monastery, giving yourself to this situation, even if you think that you don't develop one moment of concentration, it doesn't matter. You're already in the vicinity of Nibbana. Because you're listening to the Dhamma and you're looking at the Buddha and you're sitting in silence, and you're making an effort. You're developing the factors of the path. You're trying to focus on wholesomeness in the mind. You're trying to let go of the distracting thoughts and come back to the present moment. You're not wandering aimlessly in the world. Always look to... The good qualities in yourself and in others. Letting go the critical faculty. Giving yourself great encouragement. And it will yield results. The heart is heavy and dark. Pay attention. Just know it for what it is. Register. This is what hatred feels like. This is what anger feels like. Feel the heat. Feel the contraction. Feel the burning sensation. And notice the result of letting go and just being able to be with the present moment fully and experience a taste of that emptiness where the world falls away and you can actually stop. You're not chasing shadows or rainbows or sense impressions. You're not tyrannized by your thoughts, even for a second. And you can just breathe and relax. Because in that moment of relaxation, there will arise joy. And joy is one of the enlightenment factors. Where there is joy, there is calm and tranquility. Where there is tranquility, there is a chance for wisdom and insight to arise, the insight that can liberate the heart. So trust the process. We want to practice peace. It means embracing pain and pleasure with equanimity. Peace begins within us here. Peace begins with Putting out the fires of greed, hatred and delusion in our own hearts. If we can't do it here, how on earth do we expect to do it on the outside with anybody else? Because we would be unable to come from a place of purity. And it is when we act and speak and think from a place of stillness, of stopping and of purity in the heart that we can make wise choices that lead to right relationship, that lead to peace and good fellowship and wise living, which again is a foundation for samadhi, for right mindfulness, right concentration, and right release, cessation of all sense experience here in ourselves, Nibbana, which means extinguishing the flames of greed, hatred and delusion. Nibbana is non-greed. It's non-ill will. It's that quality of the mind that is pure knowing, intuitive knowing. No delusion left. Ignorance is completely vanquished. Forever. And it's possible. And really, it does, it starts with one breath. And then your mind starts to wonder and you bring it back. Your mind starts to wonder and you bring it back. Making friends with the present moment. In the Tibetan tradition, they say, going to the places that scare you. This comes from a terrific instruction that was given to Machi drama, a 12th century Tibetan nun, who asked her master, how can I awaken and rid myself of all suffering? What do I have to do to wake up? It doesn't matter how long you've been asleep. All that matters is that you wake up. So even if you've been drifting for 45 minutes or 55 minutes in the city and suddenly you have a moment of insight and you wake up, that's terrific. It doesn't matter how long you've been asleep. It just matters that you wake up. That you've gone to the place of fear. And you've known your fear for what it is. And you said, I will not be a slave to this anymore. That was one of the instructions that she received from her teacher. And he also said to her that she should Acknowledge, confess her hidden thoughts. Confess her hidden thoughts. And approach what you find repulsive. Confess your hidden thoughts or acknowledge, admit to yourself the things that you hate about yourself. Because this takes up a lot of our energy. What what is it about yourself that you can't look at? Never mind what you see in other people, because we're very good at that, right? But we have to take responsibility for our own ill will, and it begins here. What is it that we hate? What is it that we aren't feeling peace with that's here in us? And to do this, we have to go back maybe even to our childhood and remember things that are terrible. You take on habits which protect you. People think you're very diplomatic, but you develop that as a coping mechanism. And just to be really honest with ourselves, why do I behave this way? It might actually be skillful, especially when you're a nun. And just being able to sit With that fear in my own heart and to own to it. It's not pleasant. It's a very unpleasant emotion. Okay, well, I want to make peace. I want to free myself of that. I don't want to die with that. And death could be any minute. A few months ago, one of those lights just came crashing down unexpectedly. Nobody was sitting there. (laughs) And hopefully it'll never happen again, but we never know. (laughs) <laughs> so there's this the kind of urgency of practice you've got to sit down and really face your demons right here and now in this very breath the breath of life and, and so you have to learn to go to that fear to know it for what it is to be fanatically honest radically honest with yourself and say, yeah, this is where I'm at. This is my limitation. And instead of thinking it's a limitation, consider it a doorway to the deathless. Because as soon as you know it for what it is, you're no longer taking refuge in death. Then you're taking refuge in reality, in the real truth of your own nature. And there's nothing there for you to run away from anymore. Because you've come face to face with truth. And then you can bring that truth of your own way of being to the next person. That's a gift. That's a blessing. Then you're authentic. Then you're genuinely alive. You're not asleep. You've just woken up. You've just enlightened yourself. How many moments can we collect like that? And it begins with a sense of despair, a sense of brokenness. Next time you hear that voice, I can't do this, I'm no good, I hate myself. Whatever it is, I'm angry, I'm a failure. I'm too old to do this, or I'm too young. Whatever your mind is doing, just be so nakedly honest with yourself. Tear down the mask once and for all. And then, after we've been able to acknowledge that we can be true friends to ourselves, and this act of friendship, this is about right view. Then the Buddha is here. We're here to face our demons. We're here to throw off the the slavish habit patterns of our minds and to free ourselves once and for all. So use every kind of situation that arises for you as grist for the mill, as real compost and smelly as it might be. It might be the moment when you can taste the truth that is not death-bound. It's deathlessness. It's liberating. It's anicca dukkha anatta. Knowing Impermanent suffering and not self is liberating. Every negative emotion, just put it in your first aid box, in your medicine kit, because you will have transformed it into a power of the mind. This is from one of the Psalms in the Old Testament. May we all grow in grace and peace and not neglect the silence that is printed in the center of our being. It will not fail us. It is more than silence.